Well, good morning, everyone. In two weeks, uh, this gym is going to be packed. And the question that I have for you this morning is, will you help pack it? Um, So the way you can do that is when you walked in today, you should have received a little card in your program. It looks like this. It says Easter. So if you didn't know, Easter is in two weeks, and uh, you can get ready for that. And all you have to do is actually invite someone, ask them to come. Now, many of you have been doing a really good job. A couple people approached me this week. One guy sent me a text, and uh, kind of a tough guy sent me a text and said, I'm inviting 10 people to Easter. And then the next phrase was, one down, nine to go, you know? Almost like I didn't know if he took him out or what, you know, but, uh, but that was it. Talked to a woman uh, the other day. She had a much more kinder approach, and uh, she made little Easter baskets for five of her coworkers, uh, put the little candy in there and uh, Easter invite, and uh, she did it that way. Um, this week so far, because I never ask you guys to do anything that I don't do, uh, I've invited seven people. Five of them were my neighbors. And uh, one was uh, my hairstylist. So your barber or your hairstylist is a great person to invite. You know why? Because they're a captive audience. Once you're in the chair, they think they have you. You know why? You have them. Okay? So uh, you can do that. And then the other person that I invited was my 111 person, a person that I've been reaching out to. Uh, so you're going to invite somebody, right? All right. All right. Second thing is that uh, if you don't invite anyone and you just come by yourself, you don't have to tell me, but if you do, don't come to the 1045. Come to 9 o'clock because if you come at 1045, we won't have quite enough space. So um, we want you to come at 9 o'clock then. But if you invite somebody, come to 1045. And again, like I said last week, if you come to the 1045 and you invite someone, don't invite them to the 9 o'clock. Like, come with them together, okay? Meet them out in the lobby, and you can connect with them uh, that way. Uh, The night before Easter, we will be setting up here, and we need as much help as we can. And uh, if you can come at 6 o'clock, that's great. If you can't, but you'd like to come at 7 o'clock, we're going to individually pray for every single chair that's here. And so I think it's a cool thing. So uh, we'll be doing that, and so we'd encourage you uh, to do that uh, as well. And uh, if you want to come early on Easter, you can greet people as they're walking in, uh, out in the parking lot, uh, just to be able to show uh, some love to them. Last thing, if you're volunteering on Easter Sunday... Don't park in the regular parking lot. We have a special place for you. It's at the attorney's office. You might not leave from there, but you know you're, you're there. No, actually, uh, the uh, law firm of Defer Voren has been very kind and gracious to us, and they're going to let us use their parking lot. So if you can park there, that would be great. It will leave uh, open parking for other folks, okay? So are you ready for Easter? All right, here we go. Well, uh, today we're going to talk about risk to see how much you really are ready for Easter. So that's what we're going to talk about. And before we jump into the teaching, uh, let's pray. God, you are so good to us. 
And we thank you so much for all the many blessings that you give to us, both seen and unseen. And God, each person who's here today is not here by chance or some coincidence, but they're here, God, because you want to speak to them. And God, I pray that whatever the greatest need is that they have in their life, that you would speak into that today. And God, I ask that as we head towards Easter, um, kind of the Super Bowl for Christ followers, that God, we would do our best inviting, that we would uh, encourage um, people around us to come and to check out a moment where they could hear from you and learn from you. And now, God, we just ask that through your Holy Spirit, that uh, you would move everything of myself out of the spotlight. And God, that only you would be in the spotlight. And you would challenge us, you would convict us uh, to take more risk so that your name would be made great. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I don't know about you, but sometimes I kind of wonder why I do what I do. Like, why am I a Christ follower? Why am I a pastor? Why have I chosen to continue to be a pastor for the past 17 years and to be optimistic and motivated by following Christ? And if I had to break it down to two words, this is what the two words be. I do it because of changed lives. I love to see lives changed. I love to see people transformed. I love for them to uh, come and kind of have a, a discouraged, maybe, personality. And, and over a period of time, they become encouraged. I love to see people made new and fresh. But the problem with people and their lives being changed is that it often is a long process. Can you repeat that after me? Long process. Long process. That wasn't very good, okay? So you got to do better. So when you get on the word long, I want you to stretch it out like long, okay? One, two, three. Long process, okay? Long process. And uh, what I've found is that change in people's lives typically is not fast, but it's slow. And it's easy for us to get discouraged or to become overwhelmed or actually to kind of give up on people. I've been there before. And... The reason I give up is because of this reason. People don't change as fast as I think they should change. I bet you deal with that in any facet of life. It could be at work and you oversee somebody. And you're like, seriously, it's been five years. They still don't get it. It's the blue drawer that you put everything in, right? Or, you know, whatever it is in your family. You know, you're married to somebody. You're like... Seriously? We've been married 20 years. Jen, don't talk to me on Sunday morning. You know what I mean? It's like one of those kind of... Some of you are like, oh, I can't believe the pastor just said that. (laughs) Get over it. 
But, you know, I mean, like we look at people and the thing that gets such a, gives us a struggle is that they don't change as fast of a rate as we wish they would. And sometimes we give up on people. So what I want to do this morning is just share with you three kind of ways that I believe will help you to stay optimistic as you go through your Christian life. And the first thing is defining moments. Defining moments. I grew up uh, going to two different churches as a child and as a teenager. And uh, both of the churches were good churches. Both of them had good people. The only problem was both churches had a disease. They had a disease. Now... In church life, there's a word that we love that sometimes we don't even understand it. But the word actually is called koinonia. And it's a Greek word. Let's all say that together. Koinonia. Koinonia. And it's a Greek word that means communion or community. And that's why we love church. That's why we encourage people to get into small groups. Because then you can do life deeply together in community. And it's great. I love it. But... When community becomes so inward-focused that it's us fall and no mo, okay? You ever been to a church like that before? You walk in and you think, I'm definitely not in today, okay? And if you ever have that problem here, let me know because we'll correct it. But they become so inward-focused that it's not koinonia, but they get a disease. You know what the disease is called? Koinonitis. It's an infection of community. They've forgotten what the whole purpose of the church is for. Honestly, folks, the church isn't for you to sit and soak and get fat in the faith. It is to leave outside these doors and to show the love of Christ to other people. That's why the church exists. And unfortunately, both of these churches I grew up in got the disease And you know what the sad thing is? And I love both of these churches, but now they're down to about 20 to 40 people. And they have these huge buildings, but no people. Because they got coinonitis. Well, when I was 22 years old, I was called to be a pastor at the first church that I ever pastored. Those people were nuts. You know what I mean? 22 years old, I didn't know anything. Desperate people sometimes find desperate uh, people, you know. Some of you are in relationships like that right now, aren't you? You're like, I'm just in it because I'm desperate. But if someone else came along, I'd choose them. You know what I mean? (laughs) Hey, just keeping it real up in here, okay? (laughs) But that's what happened. So that's what happened. This desperate pastor found this desperate church and we got together. And I thought the role of the pastor was to take care of the religious people inside the church. And so what I would do is what I called coffee and tea visits. I'd go to every little old lady that had coffee and tea and we'd sit there. And after three years, I already knew the story that she had told me five times before. But they all loved Pastor Chris, you know. And uh, I'd go to the next people, and, and I would do whatever the religious people said. 
Like if they said, I need you to marry, bury, or carry, I just said, okay, I'll do it. And I married a lot of their kids. I buried some of their relatives. I carried their burdens. But guess what? None of those people ever came to our church. Why? Because it was full and no more. That was it. Well, I did this religious activity, and I became a professional preacher pleaser. You know what you do? You just go through your whole day trying to please every single person in the church that you can. The only problem is you can only do that so long. And eventually God kind of gets tired of that. And one night there were some sirens that were going down our street. And I lived in Flora, Indiana, where there are more hogs than people, okay? And it was like Mayberry, if you've ever seen Andy Griffith. Everybody had a front porch. And when the sirens went, everybody went out to their front porch. And I'm out on my front porch, and the sirens are going down. And two houses down from me is where the police cars and the ambulances go. Now, everybody in our neighborhood knew that that's where they were going to go. It wasn't a big deal because those people were messed up. I mean, those people were really screwed up. There were police down there all the time. Didn't think anything of it. And I really didn't know these people. I didn't know their names. I had never connected with them ever before. In three years, they lived two houses beside me. In three years, I never knew their name. Some of you know neighbors that you don't know, don't you? You've lived for a long time. And you couldn't tell me who their names are. Well, I didn't know their names either. But when I walked out on the front porch and I saw all this going down, I was like, oh, I know those people. Those are the people that play Metallica late at night and keep me up. That's who those people are. Those people are the ones where their kids go over to the church parking lot and shoot baskets and they smoke cigarettes and then they leave them on our parking lot. Our parking lot. Deacons one time actually went out and they kicked them out. I was glad about it actually, you know. So I walk out on my porch, I look down there, I see all this happening, and now there's an ambulance, not just a police car, but an ambulance. And this is what I did. I was like, no way am I getting into that. I opened up the door, I walked back in, because they weren't my problem. I didn't want to take a risk. Next morning, get a phone call by a neighbor. Uh, hey, uh, did you hear what happened to Maria? And this was my response. Who's Maria? She's like, she lives two doors down from me. Her name's Maria. Her husband, Ivan, committed suicide. I wondered if you would go down and give some comfort to them. And it still pains me today. But 20 years ago, this happened. And 20 years ago, this was my response. No. And this was the reason why. I have too much church work to be doing. Hung up the phone. A couple minutes later, phone rings again. I pick it up. Funeral director. Hey, Chris, this happened. I said, hey, 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 I know everything happened. I know how difficult suicides are and all that kind of stuff, but I'm not doing it. He's like, well, just take some time. Think about it. I was like, nope, nope. Hung up the phone. Then I had the audacity to go to my study. 
I open up the Bible and I want to start reading the scripture and praying. And it was one of the first whispers that I ever heard in my life. And I felt God speak to me in that moment. Not of comfort, but in your face. And this is what he said. What are you doing? You're trying to connect with me? And there's someone two doors down who's grieving and hurting and you don't care. Well, fortunately, I was listening to God in that moment. Sometimes you can't help but listen to God. And I got out of my little selfish spiritual Bible study, closed the Bible, went out the front porch, walked two houses down, went up to the house, knocked on it. And there was Maria and her seven-year-old son, Tony. And they were holding on to each other because it was the only thing they had to hold on to. And I walked inside that room and I put my arms around them. I don't even know these people. And they didn't care. And we were there for close to three hours. It was a defining moment, folks. A defining moment for my life. Well, of course, I did the funeral now. And they knew there were going to be so many people they couldn't do it in the little 20 kind of uh, seat uh, funeral home that was there in town. So we had it at the church. And when we had it at the church, people started walking in. And these weren't people like that came to this church. There were these biker dudes that were coming in with uh, their bikes. And I heard it. I thought, oh, God, you know, please help me. And then these women came in and they were wearing makeup like I had never seen before. Like it was really, really dark and like really, really kind of provocative. And, you know, a couple of the elders were kind of looking like this, you know, as they were going down and, you know. And uh, then all of a sudden I started noticing all the bad kids at Carroll High School and Delphi High School, they started coming to the funeral. I mean, the kids that you didn't even want on your street, you know, and they're there. And we're in the midst of this, and I give a message, and I had this great, big, gigantic picture of Jesus knocking on the door. It'll come up here on the side screen. And I had printed out a little card for each person that was there, and each person had one. And I had never done this before, because I always thought it was kind of hokey for people to, like, Ask someone to make a commitment to God, like at a funeral, <laughs> mainly because I was at this funeral one time and there was this Baptist pastor. He's like up there, nothing gets Baptist. I love all Baptists, but this guy was a fruitcake Baptist. That's like who he was. <laughs> and he's up there and he's like, and now I want people to come to Jesus and who wants to come to Jesus and, and all this. And I want everyone to close their eyes. And if you're ready to accept Jesus, raise your hand. And all of a sudden, you know, like. I'm 22, so I'm thinking, I'm going to open my eyes, see how this thing works. 
I've never done funerals before. This is cool. So I have my head down. He's doing this whole thing. And I open up my eyes. And all of a sudden, he starts yelling out loud, I see you, brother. I see you, sister. But nobody raised their hand. Like not a single person raised their hand. And I thought, I wasn't even drinking last night. You know what I mean? And like, no one has raised their hand. So I'm like, what's up with that? But I get to this funeral and I just felt this prompting like God was saying, okay, you know, just a few days ago, you didn't even care about Maria. Now I'm going to make you take even a greater risk. I'm going to have you actually ask people if they want to accept Christ. And so I go up there and I tell them, you know, and I try to make it as difficult as I can and, you know, say, you know, this is what you have to do and everything. And all of a sudden, 20 people raise their hand. And I thought I did it wrong, so I did it a second time. And then all of a sudden you see people like, do you want me to raise my hand? Do you want me to keep it down? You know, like, what do you want me to do? And another defining moment. Six months later, Maria and her three kids get baptized And the whole church changed because we chose to see our neighbors. Defining moments. Defining moments. Here's another defining moment. This happened uh, several years ago. But I was teaching on Jesus being a solid rock. And I had this big rock that was up here up front. And on this other side, I had a uh, container that had sand in it. And I was talking about the difference between uh, life that you have a solid rock on and life that is sinking sand. And I said, life is like sinking sand. Uh, We could have a terrorist attack. The economy could collapse. You could be diagnosed with an illness that would take your life or a family member's life. And so I'm going back and forth, and at the end of it, Again, I I really don't know what I'm doing most of the time, but I'm sensing that God wants people to have a moment with the rock. And so I I tell people, if any of your worlds feel kind of shaky, if you just want to come up here and have a moment at the rock, and this is when this curtain was down here, so there weren't a lot of people. I was like, if any of you need a moment with the rock, you can come up here and just put your hand on the rock and we'll pray. And we'll see that Christ becomes the solid rock of your life. And two dozen people stood in line. And it was the beginning of what God was doing. A defining moment again. And I guess my question for you this morning is, do you have any defining moments? Do you have some moments in your life when you get discouraged or when you feel like your faith is faltering or when you're investing in people and you're not seeing any results? Are there some defining moments? moments in your life. Because for me, it's the only way I stay motivated and optimistic is when there are some defining moments. You see, folks, that funeral, Maria's baptism, that teaching that I did about the rock, all of those, I saw the actual power of God moving. It was like it wasn't anything that we had created. It was simply God was present and God was moving in people's lives. 
And now every time I see a neighbor or every time I see a friend or every time I see someone in the community, every time a door opens and I can talk to them about Christ, I can literally tell them that I have been a witness to seeing life change. I've been a witness to see God's power moving in people's lives. And this might be something that could happen to you. Folks, I, I cherish those couple of moments. They inspire me. They motivate me. And when doors are opened, it challenges me. So, when we're going down this walk of trying to follow Christ the best way that we know how, we've got to have some defining moments. Secondly, you've got to have some defining scriptures. Some defining scriptures in your life. Now, some of you might be here for the very first time today. Maybe it's the first time that you've ever heard a sermon, or maybe it's the first time you've ever heard a teaching. And it's gone in one ear, and you're kind of like, okay, I can uh, follow this a little bit. But some of you, you've heard hundreds of teachings, maybe thousands of sermons. And if you were honest right now, just because I'm the pastor, don't lie. If you were honest, some of them have gone in one ear, and guess what? They've exited right out the other ear, haven't they? They didn't stick anywhere whatsoever. And you might say, well, it's the presentation, it's whatever. It didn't stick, though. And maybe a little bit, but a lot of times you sit there and it goes in one ear and it goes right out the other ear. But there are some scriptures and there are some teachings that I've done that it actually gets in one ear and it gets lodged in my head. Like it never leaves. I can't get rid of it. It just stays stuck in my head. And Luke 15 is one of those passages, and that's what I want us to look at this morning. If you would, uh, it'll come up on the side screen, but we're going to look at verse 1 in chapter 15. It says this, By this time, a lot of men and women of doubtful reputation. Do you know who Jesus hung out with? Prostitutes, crooks, and riffraffs. I have a feeling that if Chris Bunch started hanging out with some prostitutes, some crooks, and some riffraffs, guess what you all would start doing? Where's Chuck? He ain't that bad. By this time, a lot of men and women of doubtful reputation were hanging around Jesus, listening intently. The Pharisees and the religious scholars were pleased, were not pleased, not at all pleased. They growled. He takes in sinners and eats meals with them, treating them like old friends. So here's the setting, folks. Jesus is in the public square. It'd be like downtown Muncie where, uh, you know, downtown where the uh, city building is and everything. He's right there and he's, and he's teaching and there's all of these irreligious people and they're all hanging around. And they're fascinated by his words and his ideas and they're just listening to everything that he says. But off to the side, over here on this side, are the religious leaders, the Pharisees, 
and what I call the church people, the church lady. Remember Saturday Night Live? The church lady. You're going to hell, you know? And so the, the church people are over here, and they're like, hey, hey, what? You see who Jesus is hanging out with? Right? No. What are we going to do? We've got to tell him. So they all kind of come over, and they're like, hey, we've seen who you've been hanging out with. Not just hanging out with, you're having dinner with them. Dinner back in those days took like four hours sometimes. So he's like hanging out with all these prostitutes, crooks, and riffraff, and they're not having it. And why wouldn't they? Well, in this culture, if you were a rabbi, which a rabbi is just the Jewish word for a teacher who is a Jewish teacher. If you're a rabbi, you actually had people stand at a distance from you because you're too high and intelligent to have the riffraff around you. And people, especially if you're claiming to be a Messiah, don't you think he should do a better job of like his guest list? I mean, somebody is not vetting these people very well. They should not be that close to him. A second reason why is because theologically, the Pharisees actually believed that the God in heaven could barely stand people like this. They believed that God would rather wipe them off the face of the earth than to ever have these people close to the Messiah, the chosen one that they've been looking for for hundreds of years. The Pharisees actually believed that God was disgusted at people. He had this disgust in his heart for anyone who was like that, the irreligious. And he would rather send fire and brimstone and blow them away than to have a relationship. Now, Jesus is like hearing this and sensing their heart. Now, who is Jesus? He's the second person of the Trinity. In other words, he was there from the very beginning. He knows God's heart more than anyone else will ever know his heart. And he knows that God's heart is not that way toward people who are far from him. And he knows that the position being held by the Pharisees was dead wrong. It was just wrong. So Jesus has to make some choices now. Now, he could go over and, like, get in their grill and go, I am the second person of the Trinity. Woo, 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 do his own little thing, and they're wiped out, you know? Because Jesus has power, like big power. But he doesn't do that. But he makes a choice. You know what he does? He confronts them by telling three stories, back after back after back, and then he doesn't give them an explanation for any of the stories. Here's the first one. It goes like this. Then Jesus told them this story. If any of you has a hundred sheep and one of them gets lost, what will you do? Won't you leave the ninety-nine in the field and go look for the lost sheep until you find it? So Jesus says that, here's some artistic word for you, okay? There's a hundred sheep, and one of the sheep go astray. Isn't that cool? Mikey did all this, so if you like it, thank Mikey. If you don't, tell Mikey. Um, 
So one sheep goes astray and leaves the other 99. And Jesus says that in this story, the shepherd leaves the other 99. And he runs after the one lost sheep. And when he finds the sheep, he picks him up and puts him on his shoulder. And he brings him back to the other nine. And he calls like all of his other shepherd buddies. And he's like, hey, come. My sheep was lost. But now it's found. Second story. What will a woman do if she has ten silver coins and loses one of them? Won't she light a lamp, sweep the floor, and look carefully until she finds it? So, here's the story. There are ten coins. And the lady loses one coin. Now, the thing is, you're like, are they pennies? If they're pennies, who cares? They weren't pennies. This was what we understand from scholars. This was all that she had. That's the point that Jesus is making. This is all that she has and she loses one so 10% of all of her earning maybe for the rest of her life is gone and she starts sweeping you ever been around your mom or maybe your wife and like the house isn't quite the way it should be and all of a sudden it's like you know the Tasmanian devil shows up we are going to clean this house everybody get some because we are cleaning and you start cleaning all up and this is the image that I have She's trying to find this one coin. And she's like cleaning all around. And she finally finds the coin. She's like, I found the coin. And she calls all of her girlfriends. And she calls them all together and says, Hey, manicures, pedicures are on me tonight. Because I found the one coin. Because what was lost became found. Third story. Jesus also told them another story. Once a father had two sons. So here Jesus is telling a story again. There is one father and there are two sons. See, this is how we have to keep your attention because we know. So one of them wanders away. And the reason he wanders away is because he wants his inheritance. And in this particular culture, it was basically as if this one son who wandered away was saying, you're dead to me, Dad. You're dead. So give me what I would get right now before you die. And the son goes out and he squanders everything, half of his inheritance, on all kinds of stuff. Until the point where he finally is a pig helper. Not even a farmer. He just helps the farmers. And he's in the midst of a pig pen and he sees the feed that the pigs are eating and he wishes that he could eat that, but he can't. And the scripture says that he came to his senses. Some of you have ever been going through life before and all of a sudden you came to your senses. Like some of you are here today, maybe for the first time. You came to your senses. And the son goes, well, my dad, maybe he'll 
welcome me back as a slave or a servant. And I'll just tell him, Dad, I'm not worthy to be your son, but would you please take me back as a servant? And this is what the scripture says, that the son starts coming a long way off and the father sees him and he runs to his son, which in Jewish culture, a father would never run to his son. And he runs to his son and he grabs him. And the son's kind of like, Dad, I know I'm not worthy, but forget it. I want to hear that. You're my son. Hey, go get the big barbecue because tonight is the night. My son was gone, but now he's found. And they have a huge party for the son. Now, there are three themes that are in every single one of these. Here's the first one. Something of value came up missing. Something of value came up missing in every one of these stories. And, and what is missing really, really matters to somebody. Like, it really, really matters. Some of you have kids right now who are wayward. They might be disconnected from you in a way in which you don't even know where they are right now. And if you're going through that, I'm so sorry. But that's the kind of pain that the father feels for the son. And some of you, your kids aren't so far away. They're actually fairly close. But you see the choices that they're making and you see what's happening and it pains you. That missing son or that missing daughter, it's like they really, really matter to you. A couple years ago, our family went on vacation to Florida. And uh, while we were there, we stayed at a place where uh, we were right on the beach, but then there were these swimming pools. And uh, my kids, they love to swim. Like We swim from sunup to sundown. They're five and seven. We just swim all the time. We're swimming and swimming and swimming. We swim everywhere. And uh, one, one day they're like, Dad, can we swim in like the heated tub for adults? And you know their mom would be like, no, you see the sign? I'm like, let's go for it. So we're like in there. Adults are waiting on us. They're like all mad and upset and everything. I'm not saying this is great parenting. It's just fun, you know? <laughs> And so that's all we did. We just, we just swam and swam and swam. And uh, we were getting close to the last day, and they had this little beach hut where you could uh, buy anything. You could buy umbrellas, and we had bought an umbrella, and uh, you could buy uh, sports packages to go and swim, uh, do a uh, jump on a, a trampoline that was out there. And so we're, we're getting everything ready, and, and we walk up, and I say, hey, I have to pay for the bill. And uh, Jen said, well, I'll take the girls. We'll go on up to the swimming pool. And I said, okay, that's cool. So I get everything done. I walk up the steps and where all the swimming pools are and where everyone's kind of hanging out. And I look up and I see my youngest daughter, Shiloh, and I see Jen, but I don't see Jordan. So I don't think too much about it. You know, kids are kids. I walk up and I say, uh, hey, Jen, where's Jordan at? And she's like, oh, well, she said she was going with you. And this wasn't a real good moment at this point because this is what I said. Well, obviously she's not here. Well, immediately, panic sets in. 
and we know that Jordan's gone. And there's hundreds and hundreds of people at all of these pools. And there are thousands of people on the beach. And first, I'm pretty calm, and I kind of walk around to the different places looking, you know, trying not to panic. And all of a sudden, about three minutes go by, and I don't see my daughter. And she has blonde hair and blue eyes and a ponytail. And I run down to the beach, and I don't see her by our umbrella. And I start running up and down the beach, yelling, Jordan! Jordan! And I'm asking people, you know, have you seen my daughter? Have you seen my daughter? She was right here. She has blonde hair. And in that moment, I just had this horrible thought of like an amber alert or those kids that are on like uh, the milk carton and they're blonde-haired and blue-eyed little girls. And I'm looking everywhere and I can't find my daughter. And about five minutes go by and I experienced an ache in my heart like I had never experienced before in my life. I finally run up to the hut where all the business had come. And for some reason, I I went off the side a little bit and I looked and there's this little blonde haired girl with a ponytail. And I walked around and I tapped and Jordan turns around and it's Jordan. And I get down on my knees and I give her a great big hug and I love her and I look at her straight in the face. I go, I love you. And if you ever do this again, I'll kill you. (laughs) And she's like right there going, I said, no, I'm serious. I'll kill you. (laughs) Again, not good parenting, but hey, you know, sometimes you do with what you do. You know, folks, in that moment, when my daughter was missing, nothing else mattered. Absolutely nothing mattered because something that was so important to me was worth sacrificing anything. And that leads us to kind of the second common theme. Something that is missing is worth an all-out search. Something that is missing is worth an all-out search. One uh, Christian theologian says that God is like the hound of heaven. He's up in heaven and he's got a scent for all of his creations. And whenever someone talks about their faith after they've come to Christ, I'm always intrigued to ask them this question. So did you ever see God like working in your life before you got to this point? And they'll often tell me, oh, yeah, I saw God working in this way or saw God working in that way. And, and it's just amazing to me to see how God was on the scent before they ever got to that point. And they realized the reason he was is because they were worth an all-out search. Last thing, retrievals bring rejoicing. 
That's what all three of these stories are about. A retrieval brings rejoicing. The sheep is lost. The shepherd throws a party because I found my sheep. The lady loses a coin. She throws a party because she found her coin. The father loses a son and he throws a party when the son comes home. And all of this can kind of be wrapped up into a passage in Luke 15, verse 7, which says this. Jesus says, come on. There's more joy, or count on it. There's more joy in heaven over one sinner's rescued life than over 99 good people in no need of a rescue. You see, folks, every single time an irreligious person comes to Christ, all of heaven throws a party. So on October 1st, 1983, at the age of 12, when I was at a church camp in northern Indiana, and I accepted Christ, tens of thousands of angels started partying because I chose God. And when that happened... God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit are at the banquet of this party. They're at the head table, but above them is a banner that has my name on it. Welcome, Chris, to the family. And if you are a follower of Christ, the moment that you receive Christ in your life, tens of thousands of angels begin to start throwing a party and... God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are at the head table, and your name on that day was put on a banner because you're worth it. You see, people people matter to God. I, I don't know. There's just some scriptures that, like, it gets stuck in my head, and it just never exits. And every time that I'm walking by a neighbor or I'm walking by a coworker, or I'm walking by a friend or someone in the community, I try to look through Luke 15 glasses. And honestly, I don't care if they drink too much, if they sleep in the wrong bed, if they have the wrong political view, if they use profanity left and right. I don't look at them with disgust. I look at them as a way of saying, huh, they matter to God. Like they really, really matter to God. They may not know that they matter to God right now, but one day they will. And maybe God is just asking me, possibly challenging me to get involved in their life so that they would know one day how much they matter to God. People, all about people. People matter more than achievements. They matter more than money. They matter more than reputations. People is what really, really matters. And the single greatest gift you can give to any other human being is to invite them into a relationship with the God who knows them best and loves them most. And the question is, will you take a risk? Last thing, defining people. So you've got to have defining moments if you're going to stay motivated. You've got to have 
defining scriptures and defining people. Now, the greatest motivator, if you want to continue to be a communicator of God to other people, is that if God graces you enough to where you actually could invest in another person's life, and then you see their life actually become changed because of what God is doing, there's nothing better than that. I mean, if you invite someone to church and they come, and all of a sudden you start seeing a change, and their marriage gets better, and their family gets better, and everything gets better, pretty soon it's pretty easy to be like, I want to invite someone else so that their life can change. Two years ago, my uh, youngest daughter, Shiloh, uh, started doing ballet. Now, some of you, maybe you know about ballet, and you're like all about ballet, and you're cool with ballet. I knew nothing about ballet. And I remember the very first time I went to an actual, uh, like, uh, program, I turned to my wife. I said, why don't they talk? Like, if you know ballet, you're laughing right now. If not, you're like, well, I don't know. I, it's kind of weird, too. Why don't they talk? Because it's dancing. It's all about dance. And the first time that I went to the ballet studio that was downtown, I walked in. And they start doing everything, and it felt like paint was drying. Like, that's what it felt like. You're just sitting there watching, like, seriously. Is there anything else? You know, a couple kids tackle each other or something. You know what I mean? Like, do something. And so I go to this ballet, and it's always women that are in this room. And I'm like, man, I just can't, you know, I can't do this, so I tried to be the most introverted person I can, which is hard. And I get my cell phone out, and I just start doing all of my emails and my text. And I do this for a couple weeks, and then all of a sudden, I look up, and one day there's this guy that walks in, and he's got a suit on. And I'm like, another man has arrived, you know? And we start kind of sharing war stories about ballet, you know, and we're like... I know, man, and, you know, trying to talk about it, and we get to know each other, and we start having conversations, and uh, week after week goes by, and this goes on more and more and more, and I never told him what I did. I didn't, you know, talk about Jesus or any of that kind of stuff, just learning his story, and he would tell me he's a businessman in town. He would tell me his story, and I was real fascinated uh, by the kind of work that they did. And then one Sunday, I'm up here teaching, and I look over here, And all of a sudden, he's there with his wife and two kids. And, like, I'm I'm dumb. You're you're following a dumb pastor, just so you know. But I, I like, looked and was like, and I couldn't find my, I'm like, you know, trying to get it all back together. And he's there. And then he just kept coming back. And, like, coming back and coming back. And we got to become better friends. And, uh. We went to his daughter's birthday party, and we went to plays together. We went to a Colts game, had dinner together. And uh, I just started learning more and more about his story. And that's what God wants us to do, to take risks, to learn stories. And I'd like you to look at the side screen to hear his story. Growing up, I always felt a distant connection to God, but intellectually it didn't make sense to me. I couldn't get past that. I couldn't find consistency between my interest in science and the God of the Bible. 
and even if there was a God, it didn't seem possible that he would care about me. Since I wasn't looking for God for guidance in my life, I found it easy to make excuses for bad behavior and never had to think about the long-term consequences. I turned to friends for strength and leadership instead of to God. I met my wife, my soulmate really, at 17, and I still couldn't open my mind to the thought that God had a plan for me. Luckily, she turned out to be one of the first hugely positive influences God placed in my life. I know now that she spent many nights praying that I would open my mind to a faith deeper than my own self-reliance. But then at 5.59 a.m. on October 22nd of 2008, my world changed forever. My daughter Callie was born and I knew through the instant connection of father and daughter that she couldn't have been the result of random acts of chemistry. I knew there must be more to this life, but I still didn't know how to connect to God in a personal way. A few years and one more baby later, I randomly met Chris at ballet practice. I was truly impressed with his grace and poise that he showed on the dance floor. Kidding. But we did start a friendship as we chatted during our daughter's practices. He never forced his beliefs on me, and I was really surprised at hearing his voice in a radio advertisement for the jar. We decided to give the church a try, and we immediately knew it was the right place for our family. Another year later, I decided it was time to commit my life to Jesus and to be baptized. As a follower of Christ, I've come to love my family in a deeper way. I understand that God has a purpose for us. I look to him for guidance in my decisions and am beginning to notice his actions in my life. Now in everything I do, I know there's a deeper meaning and purpose because of what God has done for me. That's my uh, friend Eric, and I just want to ask you this morning, who's your Eric? You know, I, I just can't imagine that anyone would want to go into the next life without your mom or your dad, without your kids without a brother or sister, without your spouse. And if you've got to pray differently, if you have to risk differently, if you have to change it up, what's been happening, I don't know why you wouldn't do that. For me, one of the greatest moments of defining people has been my relationship with Eric because I got to see his youngest starter, Callie, accept Christ at kids camp and then like Eric said in the video he got baptized and that's what I'm all about folks that's what my whole life I want to be about is changed lives and this is the thing though folks people don't come to faith simply by standing still and going oh and then God just comes you know how people come to faith because someone takes a risk on somebody else. It's the only way it happens. That people risk and then people come to faith. And what is the risk that you're going to take and what's the risk that I'm going to take to see people spend eternity in a place where they're totally loved and cared for? And you are the conduit. You are the one 
who God can use. And so my challenge to you today is take the risk. Take the risk. Because God is able. God is more than able. If you'll tee it up for him, he'll do the rest of it. But you've got to take the risk on another person. And the question is, will you? Let's stay.